second. Can you turn your camera sideways, Dean? Yeah, that's that's better. That's much better. Okay. So, Robert, you were asking me a question about why. Um, you're basically asking the question, why does misery love company? Sure, but it's not just misery. It, it's also, there's also wholesome versions of this in ways that are totally neutral. You know, there are people that fall in love with swimming and they just propagate swimming, try and, try and get their friends to start swimming, you know, et cetera. There are others mm -hmm. that do this with, you know, very unwholesome things. It could be alcoholism. It could be, you know, idi political ideology. It could be the Dhamma. You know, human beings seem to have this nature to want to convert others to their cause, w whether it's negative or positive or totally neutral. You know, so okay. curious for your thoughts on this. So you could just say then that all kinds of things love company, including misery. All right. Basically, um, we can start it from this position, that if you absolutely know something for absolute fact for sure, that you've got the evidence, you've got multiple evidence, you've got no doubt about it. Then when two people come and you're in the vicinity of them and they're arguing about it, are you going to join that conversation or not? If you are, have just a little bit of doubt, then you more than likely will join that conversation. But if you know for absolute sure, without any shadow of a doubt, that these two guys are just fighting and they're both wrong, there's no reason to go in and get involved with that argument. But if you do have just a little bit of doubt about it, that's when we begin to cling. We do not cling to absolute known facts. We cling to things that we have a bit of doubt about. And I can give you many, many examples of that. The first one I'll give you is one you've already given, and that is, is that when someone walks into a bar, the bar uh, flies, the lounge lizards, the um, the barkeep, they all expect and want this new guy that's walked into the bar to order a drink. Sometimes they'll come in for information. Sometimes they'll come in for this, that, or the other thing. But if they say, I don't want a drink right now or no thanks or whatever, then one of the bar flies is going to try to order a drink for him and get him to drink. Why? Because everybody in the bar wants to have the justification that it's okay for them to drink because every one of them has doubts about it. They've heard about it their whole lives about the dangers of alcohol. And so they want everybody then to come in and to drink. The same thing is true that if you have a whole group of Republicans and if a Democrat walks up, they're going to work to try to convert him to being a Republican. This is true for any religion. It's true for anything. It's true for misery itself. Misery loves company. So if somebody is miserable or you've got two or three people who are miserable and somebody happy comes up, they're immediately going to try to con uh, convert him into being miserable. Everybody is like that. There's, there's an un, um, it's instinctual. That basically what you could say that it's actually the nesting instinct or it is our society instinct. We're trying to find out who is friend and who is foe. Who believes the way that I do is my territory. That in fact, we could see it in the, in the territorial instinct that the dogs that we have, their territory is a real territory. They're sitting on the porch, kind of lolling, but they've got an ear open listening to what's going on. They've got an eye open to see what's going on in the yard. And if another dog or a human comes into their yard, they're going to get up and start barking. Right? 
humans do exactly the same thing with only one small change. And that is that the humans no longer see it as actual physical territory anymore, though we really are territorial. We draw boundaries. There are actually lines between Ukraine and Russia or between the house and the road. There's magical lines. There's uh, property boundaries. We still do that a lot. But one of the things that we've also done that the dogs don't do, and that is that we start drawing these boundaries around knowledge. Intellectual knowledge has boundaries to it. And that we want to find people who live in our boundary. If I am heavy duty racist and I hate all people who are striped red and blue, any people who are striped red and blue, I hate them to the core. And if I find someone who does not hate people who are striped red and blue, I will teach him all about what's wrong with red and blue people so that he becomes racist against them also. We raise our children like that, to hate people who are striped red and blue. But in the family of the people who are striped red and blue, they are taught to hate the people who are striped yellow and green. We're taught it like that, okay? People who are different from us. This is the territorial instinct that works very closely with the nesting instinct. The nesting instinct says that I've got to find my tribe, I've got to find my safety, I've got to find my security within my nest, within my group. And that everybody that's outside that group is therefore not part of the group, they're the other. This is also tribalism. So you could say then that the answer to why do people try to convince other people to be like them is because of tribalism. We want this person to be part of our tribe and he can't join our tribe unless he passes the test. And I'm testing him right now by finding out what he believes. And if he doesn't believe what I want him to believe, then he's going to be classified as other outsider, different, not allowed in. This is one of the reasons why it's so um, likely that people, um, <clears throat> let us say that the issue is uh, terrorism. In the United States, there is terrorism. Those people who commit terrorism are not like us. People who are like us are not terrorists. Even if the people like us, and I'm talking about like us now, are Southern rednecks. And Southern rednecks like us, we hate terrorists because we know that the terrorists are not us. They're not like us. They're Muslims. <clears throat> or they're Black Lives Matter. Or there's something outside, out there. And so we will look at them and say that's who the terrorists are. But in fact, the real terrorism is the ones who are saying those people are bad. That's the terror. That's the terrorist slogan. This terror. All terrorists have the slogan. Those people are bad. And so that's the distinction. How do we determine whether somebody is bad or not is not because they're doing exactly what we're doing, because the Islam that were terrorists, we hate them. But if we go to the local mask and, or let us say the guys down the street go to the local mask and terrorize that local mask, mosque, we don't see the local guys as terrorists because they look like, they think like, and they belong to my group. So they're not terrorists. But the others, the Muslims, they're the terrorists. And so in the United States now, we have a great big problem of terrorism, but it's not Muslims that are the terrorists. It's the white guys who hate the Muslims, and they're the terrorists. They're the ones who are terrorizing, but they don't want to be called terrorists. They want to label the others as the terrorists. So this is something that's deeply buried in the mind of the human. It's so deeply buried that it comes with our DNA. 
these instincts, the, the self-preservation instinct, the appropriation and the materialism instinct and the uh, nesting instinct and this territorial instinct that we're talking about come with the territory. We are born with these instincts. The problem with the instincts is not that the children are taught to overcome their instincts, but rather all of the people around them will use these instincts to guide that child. So in other words, when the child is born, instead of teaching the child, red, yellow, black, and white are all precious in his sight. We don't teach that. We teach that all those people are no good. So we teach our little children to be racist. The children on their own are not necessarily racist. It's learned behavior. And it's society. Society creates racism based upon the, um, the instinct, to, the territorial instinct. But the reality is, is that it's not a real territory with real boundaries. It's an intellectual territory with intellectual boundaries because the humans have that capability that the dogs don't have. So we're actually using our intelligence against ourselves. We're harming ourselves when we put uh, people in a, in a class as other. That you would think that if someone, never mind who he is or what he is, if he moves from the Middle East, no matter how he's dressed, if he comes to live in this location, why can't we accept him now as a local? But we don't. We still see him as a foreigner. We don't accept people very well because of this territorial instinct. And the society misuses it big time. We promote it. We promote territorialism. Especially in politics. Politics is very, very territorial. So does that help answer your question? Um, yes, it does. Um, just kind of one little follow up. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on, say, people that are enthusiastic about you know something that's either neutral or wholesome like let's say they're part of a trading card club and they love these trading cards for whatever reason and they start promoting the trading card club because they just really like this club you know mm -hmm. you know it's just a very neutral thing you know um or promoting the dhamma you know which would be wholesome right you know, well, wait a minute. Let's let's yeah. stop for just a second and clean something up. Yeah. When you said um, that, for instance, collecting cards um, is what what word did you use about it? That it was ordinary or there was nothing to it or it was neutral, you know, like it's neutral. Not, yeah, like it's not like positive or negative. They're just cards. You know, um, maybe there's some clinging in there that would make it slightly negative. But it's only slightly, you know, it's not negatively affecting anyone's life in any serious way. It, it's uh, it's a pretty neutral thing, you know, or say swimming, you know, you're part of a swimming club. Like I used to be part of a rowing team. And when there was the day where all the different clubs at the university would go and promote their club, the rowers would be very enthusiastic about promoting their club. It's not mm -hmm. because they're miserable being rowers. It's just like kind of an enthusiasm they have for the sport which is kind of a neutral thing to be a part of a sport. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not necessarily wholesome. It's not unwholesome either. It's kind of neutral, you know. Ah, here's the point, though, that when all of those different groups are together, the guys who are there to promote rowing, they're looking at the swimmers dancing around in their short costumes and with their arms in the air, and they're over there promoting swimming, the guys who were promoting the rowing will get a bit jealous because they do have doubts about is rowing really the best thing? Maybe I should be a swimmer instead. Mm. And then the same rower will not look, will look away from the swimmers and see the equestrians riding their horses. 
And he'll say, oh, why am I doing this rowing thing when I could be a swimmer riding a horse? And he gets all of that stuff confused in his mind, you see. That's because we're full of doubt. We are not sure of ourselves. The guy who is absolutely 100% on top of the rowing, let us say the, uh, the rower emeritus, let us say then not the, the captain of the team because the captain still has, um, uh, uh, let us say, skin in the game, or even the teacher who is in charge of the rowing team. But let's look at the guy who this year comes back to the rowing team because two years ago or last year, he was the captain of the rowers team and he's there to promote rowing when he's there. He comes back two years later. He's lost a lot of his interest in the rowing. He may not be standing with the rowers uh, chanting up and, and promoting rowing. He may, in fact, go climb on the horse with the equestrians because he's not attached to the way that he was. But when he was attached, he was still attached with doubt. This is why doubt is so important in the teaching of the Buddha is because the doubt is what keeps us from actually being successful. That if those rowers were completely successful, the whole rowing team was successful, then they would act more elitist. They would not act in the sense of, oh, we want everybody to come be a rower like me. No, if they really get good at it, now they want to be elitist. Oh, we're special. Oh, we're the rowers here. Oh, all you've got is a horse. So right? in theory, then, there would be like a reverse square law correlated with the amount of enthusiasm you have promoting your cause is correlated with the amount of confidence you have in reverse, right? An inverse relationship. In reverse. In so inverse relationship. So if you have very little confidence, you'd be the most enthusiastic about promoting. Versus right. if you have a lot of confidence, you're you're not going to promote at all. It's let, let others right. come to Because you already know. You know it. It's when we have doubts about it. That this is why people talk about in very many different meditation styles. When you really understand meditation, you can recognize they're all the same thing. This guy does that piece, and this guy does this piece, and this guy does this piece, but meditation is a big thing. Right. It's got a lot it's, of stuff in it. They either promote because they have doubts or because they have, they're they making money. You know, they have commercial interest, right? That's the second reason to promote. Well, that's right. You could, you could say you've, you've heard of the story of um, those who can do, those who can't teach right have you ever heard that before that's very yeah. big in engineering right that's in fact the, the dig that the uh, engineering students take at the engineering professors why are you at the university of blah blah when you could be out there building that rocket yourself right right so in that regard we can turn that kind of around to recognize that uh, there are those who want to master the subject. They really want it. For, and the example that I'm thinking about is medicine, or excuse me, of uh, psychology. That the psychologist, um, excuse me, the client wants value out of the psychology. He wants value from it. And he's not getting the value out of it. But he me, he kind of thinks that there is going to be value out of it. And so um, what I'm getting at is, is that your entire cadre of psychotherapists is a cadre built up of failed psychology th uh, clients. <laughs> That's who become the psychotherapist are the ones who want more and more and more out of psychology. In other words, if the if they could walk into the first session and the psychologist said something very profound, something like, don't worry, be happy. Oh, you feel bad? Just forget about it and feel good instead. If somebody could hear that information and walk out, they would be cured. 
we hear that and we like it for the moment and then all the doubts about it come flooding back in. Right. Mm hmm. Right. And so and so those doubts keep flooding back in no matter how good the psychotherapy and the psychologist are. We still are not satisfied. We want more and more and more and more and more. And so we start promoting it. The psychologists are out there promoting psychotherapy full time and not one person has ever been cured by psychotherapy. It hasn't ever happened. <laughs> they will make improvements, but not cures. The same thing is true with medical science, that medical science is not in there to make cures. If they made cures, then people would not be sick. The, the point is, is that, uh, in fact, the pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical industry cannot make money out of cures. If they had a, let us say, a deworming medicine that actually worked, and you gave all the dogs the deworming medicine, and all the dogs no longer had worms, then the worming business, uh, the uh, the worm pill manufacturers would lose business. No, they want to make their pills so that they almost work, but then the worms come back. We also have a lot of medicines, for instance, that don't cure headaches. But what they do is they relieve the tension, of, and they don't relieve the tension. They relieve the symptoms of the headache, but they don't cure headaches. The same thing with pancreatitis or any other disease. They don't want cures. They want alleviation. They want to keep the disease around because if they cured the disease, they'd go out of business. Right. So there's that doubt again. <laughs> I have a funny story about that. Uh, so Sandra's uh, aunt is a doctor. And I had a case of the traveler's belly when I got to Columbia. And so usually when you get that, you know, they give you a little antibiotic or whatever. She gives me like a very intense antibiotic and then an antiparasitic. And so, and you take like eight pills, of the antiparasitic over two days and the antibiotic. You can't have anything. You can't have caffeine. You can't have alcohol. You can't have, it's very intense, but it's gone. You know, and that's because the doctor is a family member. <laughs> if if I went to a regular doctor and I didn't have that connection, I'd get some probably cheapo antibiotic and I just keep taking it forever. Yeah, you know what I mean? And a return appointment. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So this is um uh it's, it's very deeply wrapped up with the issue of placebos. Why do people have spontaneous remissions? Why do people uh, cure themselves when the doctors don't know? This is something that happens, that, uh, that people can figure it out for themselves. And in fact, one of the things that I talked with uh, Steve about was that we could consider that the Dhamma is a kind of placebo hmm. that whatever it is that we get if we think it actually does work then it actually does work hmm. in other words we say uh don't worry be happy they can actually okay i can stop worrying and i can be happy the problem is is that the doubt keeps coming back if they got it with 100 percent, then they could get it but the doubt keeps coming back. I don't trust it. I don't believe it. It's too good to be true. All of those kinds of things are said. How long did? How long were you practicing for your doubt to go away? How, how long did it take you to eradicate uh, doubt? Doubt is not ever going to go away. Doubt is something that you actually need. It's a tool to be developed. It's a skill to be developed. Healthy skepticism. Healthy doubt. Don't yeah. try to eradicate it or get rid of it. You want to control it. You want to manage it. Just because the horse is wild, we don't want to kill the horse. We want to train the horse. Sure. Yeah, I've I've wondered about that, you know, because I've noticed, you know, doubt creeps up for me a lot, as I'm sure you can imagine. And uh, as it does for many people. 
and uh, you know what degree of it is healthy and what is not. What is a case of healthy doubt versus a case of you know the hindrance? You know, and and where do you draw the line? You don't draw lines. You investigate. And just because you investigated and saw it this way doesn't mean that you've got to draw a line between them and leave that line there forever. Next time you need to go investigate and see that, wait a minute, the line that I drew is over here, where in fact now the line needs to be drawn over here because things keep changing. So I would recommend to forget about drawing lines and look at what's what's uh, through investigation, look right now what's wholesome and what's not wholesome. Hmm. That we're not going to know what's wholesome forever because things keep changing. Hmm. So, so let's say you have a job and you have a lot of doubt about the job. Like, I'm not sure this is really the job for me. You know, I, I don't really like this aspect of the job, etc. Now, one way you could look at this from the perspective of the Dhamma is, oh, this is just doubt emerging. And doubt is a hindrance, so I will eliminate the doubt and I will be completely satisfied with this job in this present moment, you know. And in fact, you take that would be the first step. Yes. And and in fact, you take it a step further even and say um, even any thoughts about the future of this job, including five minutes from now or an hour from now or the past, that is also unwholesome. So it's even the concept of the job itself is just nothing more than a concept. I'm just going to focus on this one activity I'm doing right now and I'm going to enjoy it and it's going to be nice. It'll be a nice right. activity. And so then you pick apart the job so there ultimately is no job. It's just you're doing something right now and then in a minute you're doing something else and you're doing something else, you're doing something else, and then eventually you're going home, you're having a beer or whatever. You know, but you don't even think about that whole process. So, but you know, you mentioned there are still avenues of healthy doubt. So take the job example, you know, you know, how might healthy doubt emerge in this circumstance? Well, let us talk about it from the perspective of something that we know for sure would be worth uh, having skeptical doubt about. <clears throat> and that is when somebody's lying to you. Hmm. That's a time to have good, healthy, skeptical doubt. That's when and and the answer then to that kind of doubt is an investigation. Hmm. That's the whole point is the investigation. And if that and if doubt can trigger that investigation, then it's going to be healthy doubt. If the doubt lingers and the investigation is not completed, then that doubt becomes unhealthy. It's like unrequited love makes us miserable we want to know and we don't know or hmm. if we investigate and the investigation does not reveal the information that we wanted we're left with nothing more than either building up our doubt or continuing to investigate continuing to investigate is the answer to that question rather than just being filled with doubt so let's take that point now and put it to a particular activity that you're talking about as a job. I don't like this job. Means that we need to look at I don't like. Once we can manage our liking, now we've got it to the point that we can really do an investigation of the job rather than having our feelings and information mixed together. We could put our feelings aside because we don't have any negative feelings anymore. We've gotten the feelings straightened out. We're happy now. Now that we're happy, we can investigate the job to see, is this actually a useful, valuable, wholesome job to have? Am I doing it just for the money? Or what's the point? So hmm. that we can now do a deeper investigation. And oftentimes, that's when people who are really deeply into the Dhamma, that's when they actually do quit the job, but they're quitting the job for wholesome reasons, not unwholesome reasons like I don't like the job. Hmm. So the first thing we do is we get our feelings straightened out. 
then we can do a real evaluation of is that job worth having or not. So an example of that would be like a politician. If I really hate a politician, then I'm going to hate everything he says. When I am finished with my hate for that politician, then I can listen to what he says and probably get a big kick out of it mm. because I can see the lies intelligently rather than through the eyes of hatred. Hmm. So that's the way of looking at it is, is that first we clean our feelings out so that we can really, really see what's going on. And then we can make a determination about whether this job is worth having or not. And each person then can make up their own mind about that. An example would be, let us say, bricklaying, that this guy really hates his job bricklaying. And then he finds the Dhamma. And now he can lay brick, but he's very, very good at it now because he's paying attention. He developed the skills that he needed. Then, in fact, one of the reasons why people hate a particular job is because they're not particularly good at it. The reason that they're not particularly good at it is because they would rather hate the job than become good at it. Right. If you become good at the bricklaying, then he can see the value in the bricklaying. He can continue to lay the bricks and have a wonderful, happy life. Bricklaying was optional. In this case, he chose the bricklaying. The other guy can be a bricklayer. He can get also do this same process, get good at it and say, hey, I could do a whole lot better with my life than just bricklaying. Let me go live in the watt and lay some bricks there. Some right. mental bricks, okay, and start helping some people or doing something of enormous value. So that's the choice that each one of us has to make. Is brick laying good enough or not is a question that can only be answered once you stop hating your job, brick laying. Right. Uh, that's very interesting, you know, and so... So do you think then part of the utility of Dhamma and investigation is well, simply when, when let's let's give Dean a chance with this. Right. You, you keep asking all of these questions over and over. Dean, are you around? Did you leave completely? I see a foot. There you go. Yes, Robert. Yeah, sorry, I am around and, and I am listening as well in the background. However, I don't think it's going to be a good idea to ask my questions because there's people starting to come in there now, Zamorato, so I'll get interrupted and I won't get what I'm looking well, to get out of let's, let's, let's see if that happens. You can go ahead and ask your, your first question now and see what happens. I want to now, give you a chance to talk. See, there's someone coming in there now again, so I don't think it's, you know what, I, I, I'm going to ring you back later or a bit earlier tomorrow, Damaretta, that's okay. Okay. Because yeah. there's they're, they're coming in, oh, see, I'm doing security and I'm in an office and I'm the first point of contact when people come in the door. So. Okay. Anyway, right. he's gone. I'll ask the question, so I will. So. Now, I don't want to sound like a broken record, Damarato, but my questions go back to where I was, um, what we were spoke, speaking about the last day. The, the last time we were speaking was about the subtle pains and discomforts I was getting from my practice. Um, we agreed that I was doing something wrong and I wasn't doing it correctly. It took me five days of no practice for these sensations to subside fully. Yeah, so um, can I be focusing too much? Is that my problem? Because the worst day of these experiences I had was a day of some practice and I had a three-hour exam that day as well. So um, am I just focusing too much in general and can this and can too much focus cause pain in the head? Certainly. Absolutely. Yes, students can give themselves headaches for uh, on any subject, normally the subjects that they don't like. Mm 
and they force themselves to learn it for some reason or another. Okay. Now, if our practice has the quality of relaxation and your result is to have some sort of head tension, then that means then that whatever you're doing is not correct. That we can look at it from the perspective of what the Buddha says is that everything is uh, the practice that we're practicing here is good in the middle. It's good in the beginning. It's good in the middle and it's good in the end. And yet many people practice meditation and come away with neck pains, strains, headaches, all kinds of things like that, which indicates that they're not practicing correctly. Then, in fact, the word that you used, focusing, is possibly the key word, because Western meditation has the idea that we're supposed to concentrate. And that the word concentration almost always has to do with the quality of struggling. And that what we're really looking for is the quality of relaxing. Right. Okay. And that we, and that we remember to relax. The quality is to remember to give yourself a rest, to remember to look at what you're thinking about and then to find something better to think about. And that often we have a set of rules or standards or let us say goals to meet or things to do and that we want to reach those goals. We want to accomplish that thing. And when we're not accomplishing it, the answer is you got to work harder. To get it. Well, here's the problem. You can't work hard at relaxing. They, those two things don't work together. What you can do is you can remember to stop working and just relax. And that's where you're caught. You're caught into wanting something from meditation and trying to do something to get it. Where in fact, what we're really practicing is just merely relaxation. And you're not relaxing. You're tensing yourself up because you're wanting something. And okay. so this is the reason why we do things like Anapanasati of taking a deep, relaxing breath. Remember to keep relaxing and keep breathing. Yeah, that kind of goes into my next next question because I have them all written down here. After five days of no practice, I started practicing again, and these sensations came back. So I, I've stopped immediately again. Um, yes, but oh, what are you practicing when you say that you start practicing again? That means that you're doing something to cause yourself neck tension. So whatever you're doing ain't practice. Yeah, so th this is the actual question of that statement I just made. So I've watched you many times introducing Anapanasati to someone. And in the video, you'll take a deep breath and you'll exhale your deep breath. And then you'll say, oh, so nice. When you're giving an example, you'll say, oh, so nice to have a deep, satisfying breath, something like that, etc. So, but so what I've been doing, I've been controlling. I've been taking my deep breath in, controlling it and focusing on it. But in my mind, I'm doing the self-talk like, oh, so good to be here now. Is that too much work to be doing in in the one mind moment of that? That makes sense. So I'm taking my deep breath and in my mind, so I'm focusing and I'm controlling you my can, breath. In my, in my only, mind, I'm self-talking. You can only do one thing at a time in one mind moment. You can't do two things. If you're taking a breath, you're taking a breath. So right? that's what I was wondering. Was I jumping on the object too much? Was that too much trying to do too much work? Should I control and take my deep breath? And then when I leave, exhale out my breath, is that when I should be saying, oh, so nice to be here in the present moment? Well, the breathing itself is an activity that's a process. And that the process of a breath, let us say that if you're breathing at about five or six breaths a minute, 
uh, or down to, uh, let us say, 15 seconds or 10 seconds for a breath. There's a lot of mind moments in there. There's a lot of mind moments in there. And so you can have one mind moment that is paying attention to the breathing, and then you can use another mind moment to allow yourself to enjoy that. And another mind moment to talk to yourself about how much you enjoy it. But if you're still wanting something out of it, the, the, the situation of the neck tension and the head tensions and all of that come to where you're not doing just these things that we're talking about of taking a deep breath and then enjoying that breath and then talking to ourselves about how much I enjoy it. You're doing something else. Okay. Does it matter if you talk to yourself in your own mind or if you talk to yourself out loud? I don't care. If you talk to yourself out loud, that takes a long time. That's slow. But that's okay. I've got, I'm not against that at all. What I am against is you not looking at what you're doing that causes the neck pain and, and the head tension. Yeah, well, it's not so much neck pain. It's more of headaches, kind of. And, okay, and so, so start playing. So start playing with that by paying attention to what the head is, is feeling like, where the tensions are, and intentionally start to relax that. You can intentionally relax it by massaging it with your hands and get your fingers. In fact, the big thing, first thing to do is to find out where the pain actually is, to find out where the tension is. Is it in all over the place? Is it one place? Can it move around? Can you change it? Can you make it? Can you play with it? Can you make it move? But it always has to do with the quality of you taking over and playing with it and controlling it as opposed to it being your enemy that you're trying to get rid of. If you don't like the neck pain, you're going to continue to cause neck pain. If you don't like anxiety, you will continue to cause anxiety. Yeah, but see, the problem is, Damaretto, it took five days of me to stop practicing from these sensations and these pains in my head to go. They start up around here, and then when I stop meditating and stop practice, they start to come more Again, down the front. When you say head. meditation, I don't have a clue about what you're doing when you say you start meditation. Because you maybe start meditation and something else. It's like the the this glass of water that you have that you're calling meditation has something else in it. That whatever you're doing, you're creating tensions. To where this practice has no tension built into it it has relaxation built into it and here you are giving yourself tension when you're trying to relax so you're doing something that's creating tension and i don't know what that is it's some sort of thought possibly one kind of thought would be the thought of uh is this working in other words you're using your doubt and it's the doubt then that's creating that sensation rather than telling yourself, oh, everything is fine. Everything is all right. You're saying, oh, I don't like this. I don't want this tension. So the first thing you can do, we can practice with is starting to make friends with the tension to start making friends with the sensations that you don't like. Then you can investigate them. You can invite them in and really take a close look at them. That's the practice, is to look at what you're doing, look at what's going on, look at the kind of thoughts that you're having, but not with the idea of getting rid of them, but rather the, uh, the point is, is to really look at what you're doing, to really investigate it. Yeah, look, I'm going to have to give you a call back another time because there's people drilling in the factory there now as well, and I still have a couple of other questions to ask you, Damarat. So well, you can uh, you can call back again. That's okay. That's no bother, and thanks for your help.
By the way, I have noticed while we've been talking, I've been noticing your face. Okay. Okay. I'd love to hear that feedback. All right. And I see a lot of tensions that you're putting in your face. You can start to look at whether or not, for instance, do you, uh, when is your forehead wrinkled? Wrinkle a little bit. It's hard for me to wrinkle. It's been so many years since I've wrinkled my forehead. But start to look at what you're doing with your face because it's your muscles of the face and your head that are getting tight. And this is happening without you noticing it. Okay, so intentionally begin to relax the face. Intentionally relax the skull. Intentionally massage it and let it go free of all dis uh, uh, sensations. But you see, you want something. You want to get rid of those feelings. That's desire, and desires is what keeps things going. What we need to do instead is merely relax. Even if the relaxation is relaxing, even while you're tense, that that's the right way to do it. See, what you do is you do something called meditation to you. You get yourself all uptight. You can experience that uptightness in the head, and then you think that it's the meditation that's doing it, and where in fact it's something that you've been doing all along. And we need to find out what that is. That's why the investigation is so important. So investigation is what we're talking about here that needs to be done. And when do we do that? Whenever we remember it. To remember to look at your face, to remember to uh, experience what your head is doing. Start looking at the tensions, noticing that you are tensing up. Noticing the muscles that do the tension. Another thing I was thinking about as well, could I have strained my eyes in meditation? Damarato, have you heard of that? Have well, someone strained your eyes? Why would you be straining your eyes when the whole point is relaxing them? So pay attention to relaxing the eyes. Now, how you can make that mistake of, oh, I want to relax the eyes, so let me tighten up really hard to try to relax the eyes. That sounds like what you're doing. So another way of saying it like that is forget about the eyes. Just let them relax. Go for relaxation. This is what the practice is. Relaxing yeah, the body. Relaxing the it, eyes. Does it matter if your eyes are closed or if, if they're open? Because I think I read somewhere that when your eyes are closed, you might look down at the tip of your nose and your eyes go cross-eyed and this could cause some strain on your eyes. Well, if people are doing that, it will. That's the whole point is, is that people are trying to make something out of it and then they cause themselves problems because they're making something out of it. And what I'm saying instead is just forget about that. You've been reading stuff and talking about getting cross-eyed and all of that kind of stuff. That was never a problem until somebody wrote it down in some book. It's not an issue. It's not a problem. But you're making it a problem. And the, and the problem that you're making is thinking about, oh, it could be a problem. Or in fact, it's not. It's not a problem. So you could shell yourself and say, oh, the eyes are not a problem. Oh, just let me relax the eye. So if you have the eyes open, one of the ways of relaxing them while they're open is by not looking at any particular thing. Just allow the eyes to be open. This is what's called gazing, that we're not looking at any particular thing. So when the eyes are closed, you're also not looking at any particular thing, but you just described looking at something while the eyes were closed, getting them crossed, focusing on the nose and all of that kind of stuff. No, no, that, no that's not what I was saying. That, that could happen, I heard, when, when, when my eyes are closed. But my question is, it doesn't matter if my eyes are open when I'm meditating, does it? No, it doesn't. But it does matter oh. if you're looking at something. 
Yeah, I think I'd be. Uh, yeah, I don't think I really have a problem when my my eyes are open. I think maybe I could have a problem when my eyes are closed. Well, again, don't look at anything, whether the eyes are open or the eyes are closed. Whether they're open or closed are irrelevant. What we have to do is to not focus or not um, uh, look at something that we just let the eyes relax. Just let them relax. Whether they're open or they're closed, they're irrelevant. And when the eyes are relaxed, they do become irrelevant. But you see, you've already got a goal, and your goal is to stop the headaches and, and the, uh, the tensions in the head. So the first thing that we need to do then is to stop making, getting rid of that stuff, a goal. Okay, but you know what, Damaretto, my next goal is I have to go back into work before I get fired. But I'm going to call you again soon, and sorry for cutting okay. out early because I have other questions. And Robert, no nice problem. to meet you. Okay, thanks, guys. Nice to meet you, Dean. Have fun at work. <laughs> yes, enjoy. Enjoy your day. <laughs> that, that was quite the exit. <laughs> Pardon? That was quite the exit he made there. <laughs> yes, you could tell that he was really uptight and tense. He was uh, uh, feeling like he had to go to work. Yes. He left the building to get rid of, get away from the people, and now he feels like he's got to go back into the building. And so right. he's putting himself into a great deal of turmoil there. Right, yeah. Yeah, he seemed pretty stressed. <laughs> poor, poor Dean, poor Dean. But, uh, well, poor Robert, too. Just, I mean, you've been through that, too. Yeah, yeah, I've been there. I know exactly what he's going through, 100%. <laughs> but um anywho oh about the majumi nakaya do you mind if i call you back on my phone my computer is about to die here uh just one second because i want to i, I really right, well let's like let's this. finish yeah. this let's finish this phone call which would be more for dean anyway and uh yeah we can continue on afterwards so okay. we'll see you later then all right i'll call you right back okay okay Cheers.